Dorothy and I are sitting in a booth at a diner, flipping through the giant plastic menus. Six fifty for a cup of soup? Used to be you go to the diner because you wanted to be cheap. She slammed the menu closed. Guess I'll just clear out my life savings and order a turkey club. This place used to have a great tuck sandwich. Even better than the deli on Glenwood. But don't you dare tell them I said that. Then, well, the neighborhood changed. Yeah, I don't think you'll find too many people who want a tongue sandwich these days. That's because it's a combination of pussies. Everyone's afraid. It's just a little tongue. It's just a little liver. I saw a young man put seltzer in his scotch the other day. Pathetic. And you know, this sad, bubbly water you kids try to call seltzer these days, it's not really seltzer. Real seltzer is delivered to you in a glass bottle on your doorstep. If you're not afraid of getting your eye poked out when you open a bottle of seltzer, it ain't really seltzer. Can't find a decent seltzer in this town anymore. Can't find a decent anything. The only real New York is the New York you knew in your 20s. lived in Tribeca, just like artists were supposed to. She was a painter. I'd guess you'd call her a slightly more controlled abstract expressionist in her 50s who'd gotten a little bit of success but could never be called famous. She'd been showing in galleries in New York and LA and, more recently, Miami for the better part of the last 30 years, and two of her pieces were the permanent collections at the Brooklyn Museum, but, as far as I could tell, had never been exhibited. It was a relief to not lie to her. When I reached out, I told her, honestly, that I was an artist myself and wanted to see if I could arrange a studio visit. It was something I'd always heard of artists doing with each other in that community I couldn't quite get out of the periphery of. I guess I thought they'd scoop me up as soon as I arrived in New York, their sixth sense perking up when a new young artist, lost and alone, landed on their streets. But instead, I'd nervously gone to a few openings sucking down wine and darting my eyes from painting to painting, rocking back and forth on my heels and not knowing how to talk to anybody. I was supposed to meet lovers at openings, so I'd always heard. I was supposed to pique the curiosity of passersby when they saw me quietly sketching in the park or a cafe, but everyone just kept passing by. Everyone's kind of just doing their own thing already. I reached the rusty metal door of Sarah's building and rang the buzzer. Hi, just a warning, it's a walk-up. I swing the door open and begin my ascent up the metal stairs that are nearly parallel to my body. Exposed pipes clang along the walls, my footsteps echoing up and down the stairwell. Sarah lives on the fifth floor, and by the time I'm on the third, I'm out of breath. I hope I have some time to compose myself before knocking, but I look up on the fourth floor and see she's left the door ajar. As I approach, she pops her head out and looks down over the railing. Sorry, I know it's a trek. I give her a wobbly smile and frantically wipe the sweat off my face as soon as she ducks back inside. Finally, I reach her apartment. 
Hello, nice to meet you. Hi, nice to meet you too. Thank you so much for having me. Not at all. I'm excited. Come in. I follow her inside, trying to steady my breath. She gestures towards the door to her left. That goes to my husband's studio. Then the door on our right. That goes to mine. But let's take a seat in the apartment first. Let you settle in. I have tea. Would you like some tea? That'd be great. My heart flutters at the discovery that Sarah is part of an artist couple. The relationships between artists always seem like my ideal model for romance, full of passion, creativity, struggle, excitement. Camille Claudel and Auguste Rodin, only I get credit where credit is due and I don't wind up dying disgraced at a mental institution. Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera, only without the rampant adultery and emotional abuse. Patti Smith and Robert Maplethorpe, only he's straight and not an occasional prostitute. But here I go, dreaming about having it all like I'm some naive 22-year-old fresh out of college. I follow Sarah into her apartment and nearly gasp at the high ceilings, the pure light, the exposed brick, the gallery wall full of small works I imagined to be traded among friends who had gone on to bigger things. Artfully arranged knickknacks are on display on every surface in perfect clutter. The furniture all seems like it was perfectly curated from the best little hole-in-the-wall vintage shops and flea markets. A faint smell of Dr. Bronner's products and sage linger in the air. It's perfect. I have been fantasizing about being an artist living in New York my entire life, and the setting always looked just like this. This place is amazing. Oh, thank you. Um, I've been here since 1986, back when the neighborhood wasn't so nice. You don't want to know what we pay in rent. You'd hate me too much. Wow. I guess that explains why you're so thin. Hmm? Oh, from climbing those stairs for 30 years. Oh, yeah. Also, Pilates. Do you like Earl Grey? Yeah, that's perfect. I have to say, I've been a little full of myself since you wrote me. This is the first time I've had a young person want to talk to me about my career. Makes me feel like I've been doing something right. You saw my work at Martin's. Yeah, it was one of those kind of serendipitous things. I was having one of those days where I was just kind of letting myself get lost. Love those days. And I stumbled across the gallery and decided to check it out. There was something about your work that just struck me. It's not at all what I do. I lean more representational, but I don't know. You can't always explain these things, I guess. Then I looked you up and just thought it could be fun to see your studio and talk. I, well, to be honest, I've been feeling a little lost lately. I thought maybe it would help to talk to someone who's, you know, been here and done this already. Oh, honey, have I been there? When you're starting out, it's this constant battle between feeling like this invincible genius and having your ego hit so hard you think you don't ever deserve to create anything again. Well, how do you get through that? I guess sometimes you just force yourself to sit down and work. You say... I'm going to make something, and it's going to be shit, but at least I'm making something. And most of the time, you end up thinking, it's at least not total shit. Yeah, and at least even making something shitty feels less shitty than not making anything at all. I know it sounds dramatic, but when I'm in a rut, I feel... Like you're going to die? <laughs> yeah, like that. Well, it is dramatic. It's 
fucking dramatic, but that means you're an artist. It separates you from someone who's just doing this as a hobby. It's part of our psyche. Young said that. If artists aren't making art, their souls hurt. That's what he says. I'm serious. So you've just got to keep trying. Do you mind me asking, have you had any success with your work? Well, I've been doing illustration and I've done some freelancing. Right now I have an assignment for Real Simple. And that's great. Freelancing isn't easy. But you feel a little like a sellout, don't you? Yes and no. Sometimes I do wish I spent more time working on my own projects. And I have all the time in the world, really, but every day it's like I blink and it's 3 a.m. and I can't remember a single thing I've done that day. Do you have friends who are artists? I don't have any friends, really. Okay, see, that's what you need, a community, a supportive community where you all help each other with your work. People who aren't artists, they don't understand us. We're just different. Do you feel different? Sometimes. Are you familiar at all with Carl Jung? Um, a little. I'm assuming if you know of Jung, you know of the collective unconscious, right? Yeah, I think I remember the gist. Well, essentially, Jung believed that artists are merely vessels for translating the collective unconscious into words and images that people can understand. They can access these primordial visions and this psychic world and manifest them into art, into poetry. Because of this, the artist is not really a person of their own free will. They're seized by this purpose and is burdened really with being not just one man, but all man. Do you see what I mean? I, I think so. And not only that, but he said this innate drive is activated by when there's some great imbalance in humanity, when they have strayed too far from the knowledge we can only know if we're fully in touch with our collective unconscious. He called it restoring the psychic equilibrium. We have the entire weight of mankind's spiritual health on our shoulders. Does that not make you feel a little, I don't know, self-important? <laughs> well, I mean, whenever I let it go too much to my head, I just remember that he also says, if you're making art that's not with the purpose of manifesting the collective unconscious in order to heal mankind and set them back on the right path again, then making art is just a neurosis. What I'm trying to say here is, you make sense, at least in Young's eyes. This feeling like you're going to kill over if you stop making art maybe means something. And when that drive monopolizes your energy, sometimes other parts of you are drained. Sometimes other parts of your ego kick into overdrive. He basically acknowledges, but ultimately excuses that all artists are pretty big assholes in one way or another. If you feel different, you're probably right, but that's okay. You know what? Sarah pauses and heads over to a wall of overcrowded bookshelves. She scans them for a few moments, kneels down, and pulls out a paperback. She walks back to the table and holds it out to me. 
Young's Modern Man in Search of a Soul. Why don't you take my copy? I think you'd find it really interesting. Hopefully you don't mind my highlights. Oh, thank you. That's so nice, but I I couldn't. She waves me off and pushes the book toward me once more before getting impatient and tossing it so that it lands hard on the table right in front of me, making the tea in my mug splash. Just take it, really. I want you to have it. Well, thank you. I slide the book off the table, put it in my bag, and we sit there looking at each other for a few uncomfortable moments. Can I ask you something, Anna? What is it you want to do? And I mean, really want. Well, right now, I want to write a graphic novel. And what's stopping you? I don't know. Laziness, probably. I just have this block in my head I can't push through to get started. Sometimes I'll sit down and I'll tell myself I'm going to sketch at least, but... Yes? But sometimes I just think, you know, what's the point? What do you mean, what's the point? Like... Haven't you had this idea in your head of what you want your life to be like since you were a kid? And you keep reaching all these goalposts that you're working and working and working towards where you think, once I'll get there, things will be different. Things will be better. But then you get there, and things aren't different. Things aren't better. You get this fleeting moment of joy, and that's it. Then it's right back to the struggling and the self-doubt. I thought when I'd get my work in a gallery, that would be it. And I got a group show at a small town gallery, and it was nice. But then I wanted a solo show, or a bigger gallery. Then if I thought if I got an illustration published, that would be it. But I did, and all I thought was, well, it's just some local magazine. So then I wanted a big magazine, and I got it. And I thought, well, I've just had one thing in one big magazine. But I keep getting big magazines, and nothing's changed yet. Now I have this graphic novel idea, and what if I finish it, and I love it, and I convince an agent and an editor to love it, and it gets published? That's the dream, right? But then what? What really changes? I get a couple hundred, maybe a couple thousand bucks? A couple thousand people will read it once and then forget about it? What if I'm not satisfied until I sell more copies, get in more bookstores, get more reviews, more prizes? What if those goalposts never stop moving? What if it's never enough? What if I'm never satisfied? What if I'm never... I look up at Sarah then, who's watching me run my mouth at her kitchen table very quietly and carefully, her hands wrapped around her steaming mug of tea. Happy. I feel myself start to blush. There's a long pause and I lift my cup of tea to my lips pretending to take a sip since it's still far too hot to drink. She's still watching me, I can tell, even though my eyes are darting wildly around the room. I think I'm supposed to be the one to speak first, but I've probably said enough already. But, finally, Sarah leans forward. I'll never forget how 15 years ago, I went to a panel at the Whitney to see Cindy Sherman speak. I'd had my first solo show, I was represented by two galleries, but sales weren't great. I wasn't written about. No one knew my name. And getting to just be in the same room as Cindy felt important. Like maybe I'd catch her success through the air. But the host of the panel turned to her at one point and started his question with, as an artist, do you? 
and I watched as Cindy Sherman demurred to that. She kind of hemmed and hawed and waved off the question, like she was deeply uncomfortable with and unused to the idea of being called an artist. I just couldn't believe it. In her mind, she hadn't made it. Now, that could have scared the shit out of me. I could have thought, if she doesn't think she's an artist, what the hell am I doing thinking I'm an artist? If she doesn't think she made it, then what does making it even mean? I mean, but you know what I thought? Jesus, what a relief. The pressure's off. Sarah looks at me expectantly, but I'm unsure of how I'm supposed to react. She notices my confusion and leans back in conspiratorially. The point is, we're all mad here, baby. After we finish our tea, Sarah leads me to her studio. One wall is taken up by a canvas that's a work in progress. A corner is stuffed with wrapped, finished pieces, and the rest of the room is a jumble of shelves, carts, boxes, and tables covered in bulging tubes of paint, scattered brushes, and palette knives stuck in dried splotches of color. I'm not entirely sure how to show you what I do or how I do it in here. I kind of thrive in chaos. I think I could have guessed that from your work. To be honest with you, Anna, after talking a little, I don't really know what it is about my work that resonates with you so much to bring you here, but I'm glad you did. Maybe it is that chaos. It feels honest. It's kind of a relief to sink into them after focusing so much on representation. There's a freedom to it, I guess. To be honest, I didn't care much for her work. Although the words were starting to feel true after spending some time with her and seeing the paintings in person. There's a textural depth to them that hadn't quite shown up in the photos of them I'd seen online in my research. It made me want to touch them, start picking at them with my fingernails to reveal the layers underneath. I do feel freer in here than anywhere else. My life, like all our lives, is so controlled everywhere else. It's a relief to have this one place to be unapologetically unbridled. I'm sure you're picturing some manic Jackson Pollock-esque flinging paint around crazy scene. It's not quite like that, but also not that far from the truth. Have you always painted like this? No. I used to do these very pretty, very delicate Impressionist paintings, all about the light, you know? I was obsessed with Morandi. Obsessed. Well, then what prompted you to make this shift? (laughs) Surprise, surprise, something bad happened. She fiddles with the paints on the table for a while, then glances up at me. I had a baby eight years ago. She died very suddenly two months after she was born. Never got an explanation as to why. I, I'm i sorry, that's terrible. My mother, she was a survivor, you know, of the Holocaust. So I grew up always being told that the world was an awful place, full of 
awful people who could do awful things. But, you know, I never saw it. My whole life, I kept looking for this dark world. My mother was always warning me was out there, and I never found it. I've had a very nice, very lucky life. I'm a happy person, you know? But then this happened, and it was like the floodgates opened. All I could see everywhere around me was death and tragedy. I've wondered ever since how I could never see it before. My mother died a few years later. My father retreated into himself with depression. Couldn't get over it. Stopped speaking to us. Who knows where he is now. My husband started getting sterner. He's not a bad man. He's just colder than when I met him. Then, of course, there's the news. I got kind of addicted to the news. It helped to confirm this newfound point of view and and did my work. I guess I just I stopped caring about the light. That makes sense. It's crazy to me how much one single thing can change you. Well, it was one very, very big thing. But people have been through worse, you know, and more of it. I mean, my mother... That doesn't matter. Not when it's the worst thing to have happened to you in your life. And if all that you did with that pain was start to make angrier paintings, then, God, you're a freaking saint. That's not the only thing. This was all I was looking for, and yet suddenly it felt so wrong. I'm sorry, this feels intrusive. We can get back to just talking about painting if you want. Oh, no, don't worry about it. I guess we both had our little bits of vulnerability today. She smiles at me, but I look down, embarrassed to relive my monologue at the kitchen table. Here, let me show you this most recent piece I just finished. I think it really gives a sense of my new direction. It's one of those wrapped pieces there, if you don't mind helping me drag it out. month, so when I get back home, I check the mail. My mailman must hate me as I let the box get fuller and fuller as the month goes on, but I know exactly what will be in there at any given moment. When I open the box, I'll find the two New York magazines for that month, the only things I'll actually want, my handful of bills, and then a pile of ghosts. Junk mail, catalogs, and the occasional letter from a friend out of the loop still fill the mailbox with my grandmother's name. There will often even be a few addressed to my grandfather, who died a few years back. He was that stern kind of archetypical grandfather of the greatest generation. I feel like I know him more through the mailing list he continues to be on long after his death than I ever did while he was alive. And then there is the mail addressed to Lucy. I can only assume she lived here before my grandparents, but they bought the place 20 years ago. It unnerved me to imagine my name showing up in all the apartments I've rented over the years, each new round of college kids and 20-somethings and young families sighing over the small burden of having to deal with my garbage. What stories do they write about me in their head as they collected my credit card offers and renewal notices for a lap subscription to L and mailers from city council members that were no longer my own? 
I, for one, like to imagine Lucy as a baker. I think the apartment was something of a bachelorette pad, the little place she called home as she toiled away in kitchens at 4 a.m. before saving up enough to open up her own bakery. Maybe there a man fell in love with her. Well, first her cherry tarts, then her, and he swept her off her feet and whisked her away to some townhouse in Cobble Hill. Lucy always wanted kids, so they had a little family. She's teaching her little ones how to make chocolate chip cookies, and they feel very proud of themselves. I'm very happy for her. On my way up the stairs, I stop outside Dorothy's apartment and press my ear against the door. I can hear her singing loudly along with Ella Fitzgerald. Everything seems right. Later that night, I'm sitting at my dining room table, a cup of tea in front of me. The apartment is quiet. I can hear my clock ticking from my bedroom. Bestet is sprawled across the table asleep, and I'm watching her belly rise and fall. I haven't moved for an hour. There was a time when the silence, the stillness, would terrify me as I'd anxiously wait for it to be broken, but now it feels like something of a shield. I'm painting in my mind. About a half an hour ago, I was thinking of my graphic novel, but I lost the narrative I was plotting out somewhere around the first big twist. It was getting messy. I was starting to get too caught up in the minutiae and the big picture was unraveling. So instead I shook my head free of all that and brought up a blank canvas in my mind. I began imagining tracing a red line around the space. Now that it had evolved into translating memories of random particular objects from my mother's kitchen into an abstracted still life. I'd play these kinds of games in my head all day, back when I had days, constantly planning out paintings during my commutes or as I was doing busy work at my job, bristling with excitement and telling myself how much I couldn't wait to get home so that I could finally sit down and bring these images out of my brain. Of course, as soon as I walked in the door at night, exhausted, those giddy plans made way for collapsing into bed with my computer. I stand up. I walk slowly through the living room, my fingers trailing over the tops of the boxes I pass on my way to my room. My supplies are in the back of the closet, untouched since I moved in. I drag them out. Bestet comes running to explore the newly unearthed nooks. I bring a big pad of watercolor paper, some cheap acrylics, a palette, and a couple brushes back to the dining table. I shuffle to the kitchen, fill a glass with water, and set it down carefully next to the brushes. I stand appraising the situation for a few minutes. I'm afraid that if I sit and start, I'll soon discover that I've long since forgotten how to do this at all. It is 3 a.m. and I am thinking about sitting at my mother's feet as she stood by her easel. Now and then, a drop of her paint would fall onto my toys. I didn't mind. I look over at the tea in my cup. I sit. I pour some red paint onto the palette. I dip my brush into the water and then the paint. I begin. This used to be the place. Sarah, artist, Tribeca. It was written, read, and produced by me, Celeste Kaufman. 
Additional voice work was provided by Ellis Rodenis. Music is courtesy of Eva Schlegel. Next up is Chapter 5, Gail Cohen, 1937, Brighton Beach. Thanks for listening. <laughs>